Now more with Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening as we get closer to the end of our first week over here. Reconstituted program over at Mile High Sports. You heard the, the big voice there. You can always go to MileHighSports.com uh, slash listen or slash watch, as a matter of fact. Andrew Detmer back there uh, getting the video feed going. And Danny Bailey in the booth making everything sound good. And we'll take a look at the Denver Broncos. Now that the first wave of free agency is over, the Broncos basically decided to swap out Draymond Jones for Zach Allen, player who J.J. Watt made sure to shout out on Twitter and pointed out that he loved Allen's work ethic and head for the game and believed best, better things are to come. They added two offensive it's linemen. Encouraging and, endorsement. Uh, yeah, from a guy who would know, uh, who plays that same position. The additions of offensive lineman Mike McGlinchey, right tackle for the Niners, Ben Powers, the left guard from the Ravens. The addition of Chris Mannert's backup kind of blocking tight end. And... Samaji P. Ryan. We'll get into P. Ryan a little bit more because it's interesting. But over at, at Pro Football Focus, they had taken a look at basically through this morning, looking at the sort of wins over replacement idea of how many teams have gotten better. And sort of dovetailing with what we've talked about earlier this week, Sandy, with the very nature of free agency. In other words, you, you really can't spend your way to victory. That's not how free agency works. You're patching holes. So how much better does your team really get? Well, thus far, according to Pro Football Focus, only 10 teams have had a positive wins over replacement based on the moves that they've made thus far. And they're only counting players that changed teams, not contract extensions with existing players, and that makes perfect sense. The Broncos, in that case, sit in between the Dolphins and the Giants in seventh place as one of the few teams with a positive. Now, the, the thing is what I sort of like about this, and obviously with any sort of metric, whether it's pro football, focus, or anybody who, who distills things down to one number, you have to take some of it with a grain of salt. But it does sort of fit the idea that I have in general because the Broncos are seventh and have added one-third of a win. A little over .3. So that to me sounds about right. Even though these are pretty significant additions, they've added one-third of a win. Now, to be fair, only six teams have added more. So that's obviously pretty good. The interesting part is they also broke it down by offense and defense. Now, defense, the only significant switch, of course, is going to be uh, the losses that they've had and then the Draymond Jones for Zach Allen sort of switch, right? The Broncos there are actually still positive. Now, actually, about two-thirds of the league is positive there on the defensive side. But the Broncos are there, sitting right about in the middle of the league at 15th. But it's the offensive one where it's significant, where they rank third. The top teams, the Panthers, the Raiders, mm -hmm. and then the Broncos with the third largest gain offensively. Does that Nowhere to go but up. Yeah, no, they're right. And that's right? the thought process. But, but are you and when you're surprised? 30th in scoring over the last seven years, yes, uh, almost any addition would be viewed in a positive manner. But how does, I mean, does that sound about right to you, those three things? And are you a little surprised I, that even defense, there's a positive? A I, I, I am. Um, to me, uh, six and one half dozen of the other when it comes to Draymond Jones and Zach Allen. Uh, offensively, no doubt that 
they upgraded. I mean, you're replacing nothing at right tackle with Mike McGlinchey. Right. So Mike McGlinchey is obviously better than nothing. He doesn't have to be great to represent a huge upgrade for the Broncos on the basis of his durability alone. At left guard, certainly last year, Powers was a far better player than Reisner, the man he is replacing at left guard. And I love Samaje I love that Yeah, you, you've that really signing. warmed That's, up to this one. I, I've warmed up to it. I liked him, but obviously in Cincinnati, he's never carried the ball 100 times in a given year because Joe Mixon's been ahead well, of Pro him. Football Focus had him as overall the 31st best running back in the NFL. Not bad for a guy that's not a starter. Well, you have to build in his value as a receiver there, too. And he, he is, I think, one of the most underrated receivers coming out of the backfield in the NFL. He caught, in 2021, 27 passes for 196 yards, 7.3 yards per reception, scored a touchdown. But last year, 38 catches, 287 yards, 7.6 yards per reception, and four receiving touchdowns to go with his two rushing touchdowns. Pretty good production for a backup. 26th in the league, according to Pro Football Focus, in the receiving side. So even an improvement there. And then the part that's really underrated, and if you really watch some of the Bengals' playoff games, you'd see it. Even on potential running downs on third down, Joe Mixon was pulled off the field for Samaje Piran. Yeah. Well, they wanted to keep him. The receiving ability is part of it. Part of it's the pass blocking. And it's 70.38. Yeah, seventy three point eight pass blocking rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's is well. He, he's two hundred thirty five pounds. He should be able to sixth block well. Sixth among all qualifying running right. backs. Sixth. Right. So you are talking about a guy that that is great in pass protect. Not good. Yeah, one of the league's very best running backs I, in pass protection. I think he's great and in as pass a receiver. Protection. Think of the creativity that allows right Sean Payton with that kind of player. And, and again, what when you think about the 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 Saints at their peak, combination of Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara in the backfield. Are we looking at Peyton trying to assemble his own version with Latavius Murray, who at one point actually was with the Saints, and Samaji Piran? Yeah, I, I I think so. And I look at both as twelve to fifteen carry per game guys, uh, and as receivers, I think you're looking at five to. 10 catches a game. I now, that, I, that's a pretty wide range. I, I mean, I'm with you. I think they're trying to. Between I think the two. The between intent, the two. You I'm have talking. two very good pass-catching receivers. And I think there is a intention, because uh, Latavius Murray, by the way, in receiving, according to the same pro football focus reference, a 16th in receiving. Yeah, yeah they're both pretty good top, receivers. Top, borderline two top 25 guys when but it comes Russell to catching Wilson's the ball. Russell Wilson's got to throw them the ball. But Russell Wilson has to throw them the that ball. That hasn't been Russell and Wilson's style. brings back what we've talked about all week. Russell Wilson has obviously been amenable, not just currently, but even in the past, when he had a rather restrictive no-trade list. And the Saints, when Sean Payton was, was the coach, was not on it. So he's been amenable to having Payton coach him. But boy, it's going to be interesting because what Sean Payton has had success with and what already, already, we see the investments in the offensive line, we see the addition of Pirine, and by the way, under the radar, I, I, I don't mean to, uh, to ignore it. The Broncos yesterday signed a fullback and Michael Burton signed a fullback. 
Sean Payton likes running a lot of 12 personnel. Yes, and, he and does. And that's a, uh, for folks, One running back, two tight ends. Right. Folks who want to get fancy about that, you'll sometimes hear people say like, oh, what is 11? It's, okay, it's really easy. It's really just two digits because you're thinking, yeah, there's 11 players on the field. How's it 12? Okay, it's just two digits. First number is the running backs. This second number ends up being your tight ends. That's it. That's all it ever is. So two to basically your two tight end set, 12 personnel, same thing. So there you right. go. You sound cooler to your friends now, I right. guess, when you hear that or whatever. But but, but, but it, we made the point yesterday, didn't it's we? It's a not? power running game alignment, and and both of the, the linemen that he selected, Powers and McGlinchey, are better run blockers than pass blockers. Yes. In McGlinchey's case, it's rather substantial. Yes, it is. And we asked the question yesterday, didn't Russell Wilson want to escape an attack based on balanced offense in Seattle? Wasn't that what he was trying to get away from? Seemed like and it. that seems to be the stylistic preference for Sean Payton. Now, the run-pass balance is dependent on the score and the circumstances that exist within a particular game. So I don't go crazy over that. But ideally, you'd like to run 65 to 70 plays and 30 to 35 rushes, 30 to 35 passes it is about right for a well-balanced offensive team. And, you know, Peyton's going to do what he needs to do to win. But it seems so far, given the signings they've made, that we're talking about heavy personnel, which will make some people, uh, fans and media alike, very happy who have grown weary of the Broncos' insistence on being among the most frequent practitioners of three wide receiver sets. The consistent rumor swirling around the team that the Broncos are trying to trade a wide receiver also feeds into that, right? I mean, this this is intriguing to me. By the way, Burton uh, comes from the Kansas City Chiefs, so a little bit of success there. So, hey, added championship experience. Whatever. Whatever you can get it. The... All the evidence points to Sean Payton running the type of offense. And look, it's not as if you can't get your stats in there. Drew Brees did just fine over the years, racking up the numbers under Sean Payton, despite the fact they they ran a lot of that. But Russell Wilson is going to have to essentially switch what he has done. And he's going to have to use the middle of the field more. Now, to be fair, at the end of the year, he did. He and Jerry Judy found a lot of rapport and a lot of success over the middle of the field. So the the marriage between Peyton and Wilson, and it feels to me, and we'll see how Wilson handles it, the Broncos gave up. And, and I hesitate to say King's ransom because we look at this in retrospect. And I will, I will contend that given Wilson's career situation and track at that point, there's not a single team in the league that, w- that needed a quarterback that wouldn't have given up what the Broncos gave up for Russell Wilson. I don't look back at that and go, what a terrible deal. At the time, that was not unreasonable price to pay for a quarterback that didn't appear to have that drop-off falling in front of them. But with Nathaniel Hackett being the head coach, with Wilson kind of having carte blanche to do whatever he wanted in the building. That was the issue. The issue was never, the Broncos me, turned the contract the team, or... What they yeah. gave up. And that's, for. You know, even the contract. Look, look at the look what look, look what Daniel Jones got. Sorry, the contract is just what going rate was. You traded for him, you might as well sign him. Get it done. I don't have a problem with the contract either. That's you what it is. You weren't gonna trade all that they traded for Russell Not Wilson. Get him signed and let him walk after two years. Even risk it. 
So no, I don't have I don't have any any problem second guessing that. The second guessing comes with they basically said Russell Wilson show up and do whatever you want. Okay, the question is, obviously that didn't work. Russell Wilson face planted the entire season, had the worst year of his career by a margin in which nobody could have envisioned. I think most people at this stage in his career wouldn't have looked at Russell Wilson and said it was even possible for him to have that bad a year. The question I guess I would have, do you believe it was so shocking, so much of that blast of cold water to the face Mm -hmm. that Wilson actually will look in the mirror and go, you know what? We tried it my way. It definitely didn't work. I want to get back to winning. I'm just going to flip the script and go, okay, coach, what do you need me to do? Given his pronouncements regarding Sean Payton and his public contention that Peyton is the ultimate coach for a quarterback like Wilson. I I think he'll have to bend (laughs) a little bit, uh, even in some areas where he still feels he can be effective and perhaps even at his best. If that conflicts with Peyton, I would hope if he is, as interested in winning as he claims to be, that he would bend. And that means throwing the ball in the middle of the field to at least one very talented receiving tight end in Greg Dulcich and a couple of running backs who are among the top 30 in the NFL as receivers coming out of the back. We're talking about throwing to the wide receivers, throwing, now granted, right? Greg Dulcich, if everything goes right, can actually be a downfield threat, but you're not going to be throwing bombs down the sideline to your tight end. No. Jerry Judy is best used, obviously, as a guy that you kind of run, run, get him over the middle and let him create. Russell Wilson throughout, not recently, his entire career looks for deep sideline routes. Not occasionally. That's his bread and butter. We're talking about all of that changing. All of it. Saying well, everything let- you've loved to do, Russell, we're not doing that anymore. You, you, we gave you your opportunity. You proved them, whether it's age, whether it's whatever, it's not a fit. Now we need you to try it a new way. Now Wilson said he was all for that when Nathaniel Hackett originally, and it turns out Hackett was in over his, was over his skis. Yes. But Hackett did say the right things when he talked about in the offseason, trying to work with Wilson to make sure that they could work on a system that would benefit him as he aged. Now, Hackett wasn't up to that. Wilson didn't seem interested in that. And so it didn't happen. But the the thought process was correct. How can Peyton succeed in that where Hackett didn't? By convincing Russell Wilson that he is not the deep thrower he once was. That's a hard he doesn't thing for have quarterbacks the arm to swallow. But that's where we drill down and find the essential question. Will Russell Wilson accept the notion that he can't be as reliant on the deep ball as he generally has been throughout his career? To date, we saw that last year. His efficiency, his effectiveness throwing the ball down the field dropped dramatically. It stunned all of us, even those of us who were somewhat skeptical about how great Wilson could be. No one saw a couple of developments unfolding, those two being uh, seemingly. Almost a complete 
erosion of his deep throwing capacity and also his effectiveness in the red zone where he had always been quite good and he was terrible last year in the red zone. So those two things, throwing deep and performing in the red zone were the two areas in which he declined most noticeably and it's Peyton's challenge to turn that around and either convince him to rely less on the deep pass or find a way to help him understand that, well, you can throw into the intermediate areas in the middle of the field and still make big plays doing that. One or the other, but also find ways, and Wilson will have to contribute to this, for Wilson to be better in the red zone. Is there? there's no re- you don't have to have a gun for an arm to be good in the red zone. You don't. Is there a precedent for this? He's got to move around a little more than he generally did this year, while at the same time not being reckless and getting himself injured. So these are tough issues. And if Peyton can't get through to him, I will say this. I don't believe anybody can. Want to know what you think? The uh, caller and text line is 303-831-1340. Is there precedent for this kind of turnaround? There might be. I'll explain next on Ally Sports. I met a girl so fair But got him at the evil wall Crept up and slipped away with her Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Here's Sean and Sandy. Offensive strategies for the Denver Broncos under Sean Payton. And it looks every bit as if what you saw at New Orleans when he had his greatest success and won a Super Bowl with the Saints is coming back to the Denver Broncos. Now, there are reasons, Sandy, in which I actually think, and I, I go back to the sort of the seminal is the baseball book, Moneyball, but the concept behind it works all around in sports, right? You try to look at what everyone else is doing and then you try to find value in doing something where that's undervalued. That you can get a bargain. Market inefficiencies. Right. Well, as the entire league continues to go three wide and spread and, and get higher and higher scoring games, there have been some success in the last year or two. And they didn't get all the way there, for example, with, with the Giants, but it's not like the Eagles were not a, a, a big-time running team. Finding out that the ways maybe to stop most giant quick spread offenses that are not quarterbacked by Patrick Mahomes, at least. I'm not really sure there is a kryptonite for that is ball control. Go back, go back to the future a little bit. Ball control force the it force those offenses to have fewer possessions over the course of the game. Wear out the defense, control the clock. Football is a cyclical sport. 
And there have been phases throughout the history of the league in which it's been pass heavy, and there have been phases when it's been rush heavy. And then we we may be, I don't think the, the, the spread offenses are going away because there are advantages for certain quarterbacks to it to, to get them up to speed. And I think that actually increases the parity in the league. But for the Broncos going back to a bit of a, of a power run game, that, to my mind, is not only smart and sensible, but a better fit for their personnel. And quite frankly, as much as you think about the Denver Broncos and their history with Peyton Manning winning a Super Bowl and with the John Elway Super Bowls, uh, which one of those teams was the pass-happy one? I guess you've been around here long enough. The answer is none of them. The Broncos won their first two on a power-run offense behind Terrell Davis, which John Elway then judiciously, certainly against the Falcons, <laughs> then their Super Bowl there, uh, picked his spots. Right. Peyton Manning, by everyone's admission, but even maybe his own, had a little more than a wet spaghetti noodle for an arm by the time they got to the Super Bowl. They won that on, of course, defense. And Manning gets credit by many of the players there, who I've talked to personally about, for reducing the opportunity for Carolina to come back by doing his Peyton Manning, Neo in the Matrix thing, seeing what they were about to do and audibling them into a less dangerous play. Right. The Broncos' greatest success has come when they've been able to control the clock, control the ball, and run it down other teams' throats. Russell Wilson may find, like John Elway and Peyton Manning, maybe that is the best fit for him. And sometimes it takes guys a while to get there. Manning obviously had success earlier before coming to Denver, but still, obviously, at the very end of his career, won the Super Bowl with the Broncos. John Elway and Peyton Manning, by the way, still the only two quarterbacks ever to grab the Lombardi Trophy and then ride off into the sunset. The only two quarterbacks in history to start the Super Bowl, win it, and leave. Russell Wilson will be 34 this year. Can he learn from that example? Can he look at the precedent from those two guys who uh, are in Canton where he wants to be and say, you know how they actually ended up winning the whole enchilada? They didn't worry about let John cook or let that. that. Shouldn't he know I, that already? I would say here's the I'm reason. I'm not sure that how much of an historian he is. I the know era that is different. Manning was an historian. I don't think Russell Wilson pays much attention to that stuff. I, I really, I, I mean, he he knows Peyton Manning. Uh, he certainly is aware of John Elway, but to analyze it and break it down in the manner that you just did, I'm not sure that's in his DNA. I'm not sure that's how he rolls. We will obviously find out. Here's Here's the interesting part. And as you pointed out, he had seemingly dropped off a lot. But here on last year, now go back to Pro Football Focus for some of these. When you're talking about passing depth, the grade for Russell Wilson, the worst for him was in that medium range, 10 to 19 yards, 62.8. 68.1 in the short, 0 to 9. 70.4 behind line of scrimmage, which I think is also something that Sean Payton can say, hey, look, here's our swing passes to our running backs here. Let's do something. But 84.9 among the tops in the league. 20 yards plus. He was still hitting the deep ball. When you talk about those deep balls down, and where does he hit them? Well, like we talked about. Deep center, graded out at 63.9, rather average. Deep left, 72.4, better than average. Deep right, 94.3. It's going to be harder 
than anyone thinks for Sean Payton to convince Russell Wilson to stop going for the deep sideline routes because still there where he has his most success. This is going to be that's relative. a heavy, it's, that's relative. Still it's relative, relative to everything that was awful last year. That was all, uh, everything else was but so bad. Sean Payton is going to have areas where he's traditionally not very good here. And absolutely. And I think he will have trouble getting that across to a very stubborn guy who, whose uh, head coach in Seattle was trying to design the same sort of offense and he rebelled against it and wanted to get away from it, wanted to escape it. And I don't know, he, he may think that Sean Payton is different. Sean Payton is certainly more offensive-minded than Pete Carroll, who pays more attention to defense. But the best offensive minds I've talked to in the last year are unanimous in believing that Pete Carroll had found a way to manage the decline of Russell Wilson and obviously did that more effectively than Nathaniel Hackett did last year in Denver. Yes. Now, I will also say that they are different personalities. Uh, Pete Carroll is renowned as a player's coach. That is not Sean Payton. Sean Payton is more of the Bill Belichick, we're doing it my way, get on board or get out style of coach. It will be interesting to see how Wilson approaches that. I agree. As opposed to Hackett's, I don't know what I'm doing here, do whatever you want approach, which is what they ended up with last year. And uh, that'll work just fine, I guess, in New York in the Jets with Aaron Rodgers again, whenever that gets completed. But it obviously didn't work here. And it is going to be one of the more, more than anything, the offensive line, obviously the revamp there is going to be critical to success. It's probably the second most important thing. It's the most important thing personnel-wise. But for Peyton and Wilson to get on the same page may be tricky because Peyton, at least historically, I can't say no impersonally, is not the type to necessarily be inviting Russell Wilson for a lot of his suggestions. Drew Brees never indicated that was the case either. Drew Brees was the, look, it's working. I'll just do what you tell they me to do. They had, though, they a had, way of communicating almost a language unto themselves mm-hmm. that even Brees' teammates didn't quite understand. But Drew Brees is a guy that was more than happy hitting underneath worked. routes and running well, backs. Exactly. exactly there, right. there was some similarity in the way they viewed the way to produce offense. Uh, Drew Brees, yes, you can look at the highlights. I'm sure he had plenty of success doing the deep balls. He threw a beautiful deep ball. But Drew Brees got all those yards he got. Six, seven yards at a time for the most part. So did Tom As Brady. As did Tom Brady. Yep, so did exactly. Tom Brady. So did Peyton Manning. Years ago, I was speaking informally with Mike Shanahan. And out of the blue, uh, it was around the time that Greasy was here. He asked me, who are the best dinkers and dunkers? Because my criticism of Greasy had been that he was merely a dinker and dunker. Mm-hmm. And... I said, well, you tell me. He said, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. And Drew Brees, I don't believe, was in the NFL at that time. But if it had been a conversation we'd held 10 years later, I'm sure Drew Brees would have been included. I would say even more so than the other two guys, yeah. Along with the other two guys. And he says that they, as practitioners of the dink and dunk, 
set up the deep ball. They're capable of throwing the deep ball. They're very good at it, actually. But everything is based on short to intermediate stuff. And I think the Bronco passing game functioned better. I'm talking about the overall passing game. I'm not talking about metrics for an individual quarterback. Functioned better when Wilson was getting rid of the ball more quickly, and he has a tendency to hold it. That uh, was, longer that was than almost any quarterback. That that's, was true in Seattle. That wasn't got, just something that developed here in Denver. No, that's because that he's was waiting for guys to get open downfield. Right. He's stalling. Right. But he wasn't throwing to Metcalf or Lockett last year. No. He was throwing to Cortland Sutton and at least for the first 11 games, a rather mediocre Jerry Judy. Who's not really well cast as a sideline deep not ball really. guy. Not really. And, of course, there was no Tim Patrick, and there really never became an effective third wide receiver. Injuries had something to do with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wilson's inability to develop any kind of rapport with K.J. Hamler was another part of that. Even when Hamler was available and was healthy, we remember the overtime game with Indy when Hamler in the overtime with the game on the line is standing in the back of the end zone, waving for the ball. Yeah, spiked and his Wilson, helmet after the game. Wilson right, never saw him. Wilson never sees him and throws a pick. So it, it's, as I said, going to involve, and you've made similar observations, I think some bending on Wilson's part. And, you know, the first act that needed to happen was the disempowerment of Russell Wilson by his head coach. And I'm pretty well convinced that has taken place now. No more second floor office, no more uh, personal staff running all over the building, going places that they have no business going. But fundamentally altering his style and the way he has played throughout his life that he seems quite unwilling to relinquish, that's the challenge. Uh, now, again, Peyton and Breeze were, turned out to be kindred spirits. And the interesting part of that story is that if Nick Saban had gotten his way as head coach of the Miami Dolphins, Drew Brees might have been a Miami Dolphin rather than a New Orleans Saint. And certainly at the beginning, in the wake of Katrina and everything else, there weren't high expectations in New Orleans. And Sean Payton and Drew Brees will never have to buy another meal or another drink in the city of New Orleans for the rest of their lives for what they did during the first, what, four years? Right. Culminating with a world's championship in the Super Bowl against Peyton Manning's Indianapolis Colts. Can the Denver Broncos make that work? They are betting virtually everything on it. We will see. Of course, uh, upsets are already beginning, and you don't need to find a pot of gold to strike it rich this mark. As a matter of fact, just win money on your tournament wagers with Superbook Sports. Superbook features the best team of odds makers in the business, so they're the safe bet when it comes to sports gambling. You have a direct line to their experienced staff behind the counter in Las Vegas, and they also have one of the most extensive betting menus around. So no matter what you want to wager on come tournament time, Superbook is sure to have it. Download the Superbook app and start winning today. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions, and if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. 
4,700. We'll check in. What's happening with March Madness next on Mile High Sports? Never been a sinner. I never sinned. I got a friend in Jesus. Now more with Sandy Clough and Sean Rotar. Presented by Burnham Wall. Hire the winner at BurnhamWall.com. This is Sandy and Sean on Mile High Sports. Welcome back. I'm Sean Drotar, Sandy Clough on my left. Of course, we're paying attention to the NCAA uh, men's basketball tournament. March Madness, colloquially, right? The give you the latest of these these situations here. I have, the games that most recently went final. Uh, my upset with Charleston over San Diego State did not come to pass. San Diego State knocks them off, sixty three to fifty seven. Uh, earlier in the day, Missouri knocks off Utah State. That's a seven over ten. Maryland comes back from an early deficit mm-hmm. to beat West Virginia, sixty seven sixty five. Kansas uh, thumps Howard, ninety six to sixty eight. The most one sided of today's games thus far, although Alabama's 96-75 win over Texas A&M. Corpus <laughs> Christi comes close. It is the uh, the upset, though, of the day that, that we'll be talking about as we speak right now. Arkansas just at halftime up by 10 over Illinois. Arizona up by 8 over Princeton uh, almost midway through the second quarter. Pretty good uh, showing by Princeton thus far, but they can't afford to get behind much more. No. No, it, it is the, the higher uh, the score, the better it is for Arizona right. in that yeah. sort of game. Exactly. And I, I think that's true with most any game in this tournament that involves uh, uh, one of the high seeds against one of the lower ones. The higher the score yeah, you've gets, keep that score down. Uh, the, the mid-majors, uh, lower uh, major teams can't keep up because they don't have the firepower. It, it, uh, San Diego State is an exception to that though. And, and you know, it's a plane out of the mountain West, which is actually, I think this year, a pretty good basketball conference. And they prefer a low scoring kind of game. Charleston needed a higher score than 63 57 to have a chance. to. Win. Yeah. Uh, they did not get it. So even though they're uh, at a season of 31 and four, that run comes to an end, but the big upset uh, Furman, the Furman Paladins. That that truly is a shock. Knock off uh, Virginia yeah. Caval- Paladins and Cavaliers. The guys with the uh, guys, guys with swords. With both, both with a, uh, a somewhat French history. As a matter of fact, Cav- like this, this. I love when you get into some of these mascots because, of course, you know, Cavaliers kind of a, a this sort of a similar to a, like a musketeer kind of thing in general with swords and and potentially on cavalry and cavalier. But Cavalier in French, if you will, this is what you get on this program. Sorry about that. And the Furman Paladins, uh, Paladins, for those, uh, there's probably some people that played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. They're like, I know what that is. Well, it's not really the same, same thing. Uh, Paladins, if you, these are where, Sandy, I question a little bit uh, how I've spent my life. Uh, Paladins uh, come from the famous 12 peers of Charlemagne, the uh, Frankish Germanic head of the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, think Which of Which was neither holy nor Roman. Nor Roman, right. Born in Germany, died right. in France. Uh, sort of sort of odd there. But yeah, the 12 peers of Charlemagne were, were paladins. Sort of think of it as like a Knights of the Round Table with King Arthur, except real. Uh, anyway, anyway, that's the Furman Paladins out of, as we found out, South Carolina. I had to look that up. I knew what a paladin was. 
and how it's tied back to French and, and German history, but I didn't actually know where Furman was until I looked it up. But here they are for their first win in 50 years advancing out of the first round. Yes. Uh, 1974 was their last tournament win, NCAA tournament win. And uh, I must confess, I don't remember that, but uh, they'll remember this one today Guarantee you, for Danny, the next 50 years. Danny Bailey and Andrew Detmer in the booth, not even apples of their parents. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Parents might not have been around at 74. I don't know. No idea. 1974. It's been a while. Last time Furman won. And they won in the most unexpected way against this particular opponent, which turns the ball over less frequently than any team in the country and had seven turnovers for the game with 10 seconds left on a two-point lead. They turn the ball over. And not only does Furman go the other way, but they hit a three with under three seconds to go to go up by one, and they win by 168 to 67. Again, in a relatively low-scoring game that you would think would favor Virginia, especially considering that Virginia was up by 12 with 10 minutes to go. And I'm not sure I was certain that Furman at that point would score 12 more points for the rest of the game. They were down 12 with 10 minutes to go. They end up scoring 41 in the second half after only 27 points were scored against Virginia by Furman in the first half. They took care of the ball, too. Only nine turnovers for Furman. It wasn't like they they were careless with it, which, of course, you can't be if you're going to topple a team like that. Virginia wins the game with seven turnovers, and they will remember the eighth tournament. The kids who played, especially uh, kids who won't be coming back next year, will probably be haunted by this they game, as well coach Tony Bennett for a very long time. Yeah. Now, Virginia has recently won a national championship, mm-hmm. so nobody feels sorry for them. And there were a few people who did forecast that upset today. I came close you yesterday, did. but uh, you were on it, did though. not pull the trigger. Anybody who is listening to Sandy, though, and, and at least uh, maybe bet for him to cover on Sandy's recommendation. But everything else today well. is chalk so far, right? So far, well, I mean, nine over eight if this might happen here and there, but uh, but yet, it hasn't, hasn't even happened, happened yet. today. It hasn't even happened yet. Everything's eight been the chalk. Nine, Maryland over West Virginia, and Arkansas is leading Illinois by ten at the half. That's another eight nine. Virginia, game. The by the way, to play Kansas on Saturday. In that game, uh, shot two for 12 from three. That's a good way to get yourself bounced. Well, it, they, now, granted, they don't rely on it. They only took, they only took 12 threes compared right. to Furman's right. 28, but you have to hit better than 16.7%. Well, they, they would have liked to have had more than two, but, you know, it was kind of their game. Okay, they went 67-65. At least they avoided the upset, and it really is sort of their kind of game. Um, that. <laughs> That last turnover, though, yeah. was it is a live ball turnover. A dead ball turnover, they probably still win. Mm-hmm. They More probably likely, still win. You have a chance to set up the but defense. But it's a yeah. live ball turnover. And, uh, you know, there are two things that set up the ideal three ball. Live ball turnovers and offensive rebounds. And right. scrambling situations where... You find, you find that desperation three-point kick out. shooter on the kickout, and the defense is not set, having failed to yeah, gain going, the advantage yeah. on the boards. Virginia's biggest lead in that game was 12. Furman's was yeah. three, and they win by one. But Furman at- was ahead for a grand total of three and a half minutes for the course total. of the entire game. 
total. Three and a half. Next picks. one's up. Uh, you're right, and you're right. Uh, as thus far, no other upsets from the seeding purpose at all. There is another eight versus nine tonight in just about an hour. Auburn at number nine will, will tip off against Iowa. And that's a coin flip game. Too. That one is that's too. Uh, or if you like your twelve and fives, you guys guess you could pick thirty and four. Oral Roberts, but they're playing Duke, who is a five, but then again is playing better right now than they have Duke, played all season long. Duke should be no worse than a four seed. I don't know as well as they have played. They are. They won their tournament now. So they weren't even an at-large bid. They were an automatic qualifier because they won the conference tournament. I was very surprised that, uh, frankly, Tennessee, not playing very well late in the year, was seated fourth in the east, and Duke was fifth. I thought that should have been Colgate will take on Texas. That's a 15 versus a two. Uh, for the uh, Boise State, will take on Northwestern 10 at a 7. Those are the sort of uh, late afternoon, early evening games. The uh, early slate, starting at the 7 p.m. time here, where we are in Denver, Northern Kentucky at Houston, Louisiana at, to aforementioned, Tennessee, right. Penn State at Texas A&M. And then, uh, That'll the, be a good game, too. I think that will be a good That'll game. A and then the, uh, the closer for tonight, probably not good, UNC Asheville versus UCLA, who I, I had preseason as the national champion and would still actually like their chances had I have seen Clark people pick them not, even without Clark even without Clark I've still seen people pick them I have them getting knocked out in the eight without Clark I that's where I have it ending I do UCLA too. but otherwise I, I would have had them I maybe do. winning the whole thing so it will be interesting to see how it goes you know want to want to know how uh, it's gone for you too especially after that first day is in and of course uh, this is in many ways the when you're talking about back to back to this might be my favorite four days of sports from Thursday through Sunday. Oh, absolutely. Just all day long, all unpredictable basketball. Yeah. Uh, I, I really always enjoy this tournament. And uh, are there any of these particularly tonight that you're really intrigued about? Obviously, that that Auburn, Iowa is kind of a coin flip. But yeah, those other I don't think any of the ones that are big seated differences have much of a chance of an upset. Not tonight. I, I don't see it. Uh, I certainly don't see Duke. Losing to Oral Roberts. I, I yeah, I can't, can't see that one at all. Envision that. In fact, it's uh, it, it's kind of a bad break for Oral Roberts. <laughs> Feels In like they case, deserved a, a little better. Seed. Thirty win season. Uh, they'd be better off playing Tennessee than they will likely be playing Duke tomorrow morning. Starting at ten fifteen again, you get a good one. I think a good toss up type game. USC versus Michigan State. That is a toss up game, and. Um, I will be pulling very hard for Michigan State because I think Michigan I do State like the way one. Tom Izzo um, brings his team along. They grind. They peak in the tournament. Yeah, they, they do. They, they they weren't all that great during the regular season. Uh, USC uh, should have been right there all year long with Arizona and UCLA in the Pac-12, and because they weren't, it reinforces. Uh, my notion that uh, their coach, Mike Enfield, uh, might be the most overrated coach in all the college basketball because they've had great talent that he hasn't quite been able to bring together. 
I mean, how on earth is USC a 10 seed? That's one of those, it, it feels like they should be a five Recruiting's seed. good. They should Actual be Actual X's seed. and O's, eh, not so much. Uh, a couple of three seeds in action tomorrow morning that I think have a chance to go very, very deep runs on the tournament. Kennesaw State will take on number three, Xavier. Number 14, UC Santa Barbara versus number three, Baylor. Tough physical Baylor team like every year. So there's a lot to watch. It's, it's something we're going to enjoy. And of course, the Nuggets, by the way, will tip off in just about an hour in a game against the Pistons that, one, they had better win. Two, play your bench. Rest yes. the guys. Yes. I want the W, but I they want They should I want be rest. up by at least 20 at halftime. Especially since Detroit has their attention from having beaten them yeah. earlier this year. Yeah. And by the way, also doesn't actually want to win the basketball game. So, you know. There's that. We'll make sure we check in with it. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, thanks to Danny Bailey and Andrew Depper making it all work there behind the booth. Uh, it's so terrific to have such a pair of very, very talented producers available making this not only a some show you can hear and you can stream, but you can also watch. So make sure you check that out. MileHighSports.com and the free Mile High Sports app, as well as check out everything they're putting together at Mile High Sports. Some of the best reporting on all the teams in town, every team every day. That'll do it for us. We're going to hand it off to our friends on Afternoon Drive, Anilo Pilo and Cody Rourke. For Sandy Clough, I'm Sean Drotar. We'll catch you tomorrow right here on Mile High Sports.